0: Namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sammāsambuddhassa Namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Namo tassa Namo Bhagavato, arahato, sammasa buddhasa, buddham dammang, sangham namasami. When you first came to this center, until you take a walk in the forest, you wouldn't know where to go. You might miss the trail and miss the way back and be lost out there. But once we get familiar with the coordinates, with the forest, with the boundaries, where it begins, ends, where different paths lead and how to return to these buildings, then we feel quite safe. We can trust going out there, as long as you're mindful of the ticks. That's how we are in life. We grow up in this world of so much variety, so many choices thrust upon us. And we're not really trained properly to make choices on all the levels that they present themselves to us in life. And so very often, we get lost in the world, in our own lives. Lost, dazed, and confused. Do you remember those words from an ancient tomb? This path, this teaching, is giving us direction It's giving us signposts, it's giving us opportunities to make wise choices, but we have to do a lot of homework to be able to learn the ropes, learn the trails, learn the signings on the trail, on the path of life, so we can turn in directions that support us in qualities of wholesomeness, of wisdom, of peace, of skill. Skill in ethics, in moral ways. Because after all, we are moral beings. The fabric of the heart is a moral fabric. It's not a burnable cloth. It's a moral tapestry. And to honor it, to uphold it, To care for it, we must become skilled in morality, in uplifting ourselves in the ways that will produce wholesome deeds, wholesome speech, wholesome thinking, wholesome results. Wholesome meaning harmless, protecting life, protecting each other, caring for, making peace not war. And where does that begin? It begins with each of us from within. The real armaments are inside of us. Of course, there are nuclear weapons now in many places in the hands of beings with not much wisdom. Then the whole world becomes endangered. That danger does not disappear through the use of arms, arms against arms, but due to the force of loving-kindness, compassion, and wisdom, grown in the hearts of beings such as ourselves here, in this very room. If we can grow in these ways, then we can find our way through the maze of life, without getting lost. Even if the forest were to burn down, even if the trees were to disappear, if we really graduate in this gradual training, if we evolve with it properly, then our own hearts will not burn up. Because we can become established in a training which gives us the resilience to withstand the insults of the world, and to grow in peace. But first we have to do some homework. We have to learn how to clear a path through the jungle. We have to learn how to see from scratch, all over again. Because the ways that we've been taught and trained as kids, as young adults, Do not give us those skills, those ways. Do not endow us with an exalted, transcendent wisdom. The skills of the heart, the craft of the heart, is of a very different texture. It's an art in and of itself. Learning to see again means to decondition the mind from its conditioning. Coming into this space and keeping silent and observing the state of our minds is just what a doctor would do. If you go to see your doctor, she will take a stethoscope and listen to your heartbeat and assess by measuring your pulse, your blood pressure, doing blood tests, and give us a diagnosis. Maybe something we like, something difficult, we don't know. But whatever state it is, we only discover it because of the skill this physician has in diagnosing the physical condition. Here we are, each one of us, we are asked to be our own doctor, mental doctor. What's the condition of the mind? So this attending to the silence is like applying a stethoscope to the mind, and listening to the heartbeat. But it isn't the physical heart. It's the heart-mind. Where is your mind? Sayada Upandita asked me that 30-odd years ago. Where is your mind? And I pointed to my heart. Yes. The heart, mind, it is not the brain. That's just chemistry and neurological action. But the heart is the moral action of the being. So this is what we want to understand and develop. And deconditioning, it means we have to understand it by listening and observing What is the condition of this citta, this mind, heart-mind? What's the condition? Well, when you sit down day one, it's restless. It's tired, anxious, wanting, upset, irritable, flimsy, shaky. It's dizzying. The mind is so... Accustomed, habituated to thinking, chewing, consuming, acting, reacting, running, running from, running to, running away, running with, so much speed. As long as we're speeding along, we don't see what we're doing, we don't understand our direction, we may stop and wonder what on earth is it all about? What am I doing? What is the meaning of this life? Stopping to witness the raw state of the mind is such a valuable action. Let us be ever curious about that, investigating more and more deeply so that we can come to see how we are caught and how to disentangle ourselves from the shackles of life that have become a burden for us in one way or another. Attachment to youth, to beauty, to vanity, to health, to life itself, to people, to possessions, to status situations, promotions, other people's opinions, our own opinions, Our views, our fixed views, our biases, our prejudices, our depression, our pleasure, our worry, our panic, all of it. I thought I would read to you the words of the Buddha from the verses of uplift, the Udana, chapter one number ten, the Bahya Sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Sawati at Jeta's Grove, Anattapintaka's monastery. And on that occasion, Bahiya of the Bark Cloth was living in Suparaka by the seashore. He was worshipped, revered, venerated, and given homage a recipient of robes, alms, food, lodging, and medicinal requisites for the sick. And then when he was alone in seclusion, this line of thinking appeared to his awareness. Now, of those who in this world are arhans or have entered the path of arhanship, am I one? Then a devata, who had once been a blood relative of Bahia, desiring his welfare, compassionate, knowing with her own awareness the line of thinking that had arisen in his mind, went to him and on arrival said to him, You, Bahia, are neither an Arahant, nor have you entered the path of Arahantship. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become an arahant or enter the path of arahantship. Then who in this world with its devas are arahants or have entered the path to arahantship? He asked her. And she said, Bahia, there is a city in the northern country named Savati. There the Blessed One, referring to the Buddha, an arahant, rightly self-awakened, is living now. He teaches the Dhamma, leading to full awakening. Then Bahiya, deeply chastened by the Devata, left Suparaka, and in the space of one night, went all the way to where the Blessed One was staying, near Sawati at Jaita's Grove, Anatapindika's monastery. Now on that occasion, A large number of monks were doing walking meditation in the open air. Bahia went to them, and on arrival he asked Where, Venerable Sirs, is the Blessed One, the Arahant, fully self-awakened? Where is he staying? And the monk said, The Blessed One has gone into town for alms. Then Bahia hurriedly left Jeta's grove and entered Sawati, seeing the Blessed One going for alms in Sawati, serene and inspiring serene confidence, calming his senses of peace, his mind at peace, having attained the utmost tranquility and poise. Seeing him, Bahi approached the Blessed One, and on reaching him, he threw himself down with his head at the Blessed One's feet, and said, Teach me the Dhamma. O Blessed One, teach me the Dhamma. O well-gone-forth one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. When this was said, the Blessed One said to Bahia, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. A second time, Bahya said to the Blessed One, but it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me the Dhamma, O well-gone-forth one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. Bahya was not to be put off. A second time, the Blessed One said to him, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. So, a third time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, It is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma. O Blessed Lord, teach me the Dhamma. O well-gone-forth one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. So then the Buddha, out of compassion, taught vādhya in this way. Vādhya, you should train yourself thus. In the seen, there will be only the seen. In the heard, there will be only the heard. In the sensed, there will be only the sensed. In the cognized, there will only be that which is cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the seen in the seen, only the heard in the heard, only the sensed in the sensed, only the cognized in the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that there is no you there when there is no you there you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two this just this is the end of suffering through hearing this brief explanation of the dhamma from the blessed one the mind of bahia of the bar cloth right then and there was freed from the effluence freed from all clinging. Having exhorted Bahia of the barcloth with this brief explanation of the Dhamma, the Blessed One left. Not long after, Bahia was attacked and killed by a cow with a young calf. Then the Blessed One, having gone for alms in Salati after the meal, returned from his alms round with a large number of monks and saw that that Bahya had died. On seeing him, he said to the monks, Bahya of the barcloth was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. Bahya of the barcloth monks is totally unbound, totally free. That means he was fully awakened after that brief teaching. Then, on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One exclaimed, Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars do not shine. The sun is not visible. The moon does not appear. Darkness is not found. When a sage, a brahmin, wisdom has realized this for him or herself. Then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he or she is freed. That is what the Blessed One said. And Bahia of the Barcloth is one who is known for being the swiftest to hear the teaching and become fully awakened. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, or in that which is known, there is only the known. What does this mean? This means that when we learn to see, we are seeing only the true characteristics of whatever is appearing in consciousness without any proliferation whatsoever. In seeing objects, our minds are easily caught up in proliferating, in liking and disliking, in wanting and not wanting, in clinging and feeling repelled, in acting and reacting. This is how we keep circling in the world from experience to experience and proliferating when we hear, when we see, when we feel. We associate to that which is liked and disliked, to that which we want or don't want. And there our attachments grow and increase. Our distractions grow and increase. And we get further and further lost deep in the jungle, unable to find our way out because the mind cannot understand that which is in front of us. It cannot see properly the single thing It is always lost in the multiplicity of events, of thoughts, of distractions, lost in the state of distractedness. We do not see the forest for the trees. We are constantly caught in duality between the knower and that which is known. The way out of the maze of the forest is through going within to the place of non-differentiation, the place of emptiness within us. The way of knowing so that in the scene there is only the seeing. But then there is nothing seen. We come to the point where there is no longer the seeing or the seer. The Buddha was pointing Bahia towards this ability to go beyond duality, to vanquish our notion or our belief, our clinging to this self, this ego that continues to create the world, to create the forest in which we continuously get lost. So here, we can find the way to silence the chattering mind so that we can experience the way of nothingness, of emptying the mind completely, silencing the mind so that in That stillness, we can rest, is a place where clinging ends, where all the movement in the mind comes to a complete standstill. This is called the vanquishing of the world. Freeing ourselves from the world means this kind of complete seclusion from the world. And it is a state of freedom which is indestructible. Neither earth, water, fire, or air have any footing there. We see that when we stop and listen in the silence or look in the silence at objects arising in the mind. What are those objects? They are just apparitions. They appear, they last for a moment, and then they are gone again. They appear and disappear. They are impermanent. They are bound up in dukkha, because we can't cling to any of it. We can't own any of it. There's nothing there that we can keep at all. We can't keep the body or anything in it. We can't keep a single thought because it vanishes. Even a depressed thought, it arises and vanishes. We may try to hold it, but we're actually just believing and making out of many, many thoughts of a certain quality a person who is depressed. Whereas that person doesn't exist. But being caught up in the belief that that person exists, we become the slave to the state that we believe is that person. So even these states of pleasure or despondency are not true. They're not what we are. Identifying with them, we are like slaves. We might be happy slaves or depressed slaves, but we are not those slaves. These are only the fantasies of the mind. The wrong views of the mind, the wrong ways of seeing; these are worldly winds to be let go of. That's why this practice of seeing only what is seen, just exactly as it is, impermanent, dukkha, full of suffering, it cannot give us any satisfaction, not lasting, and it's empty of any being. Seeing that is so freeing. It's a moment of wisdom, a moment of understanding. So this teaching that the Buddha gave to Bahya, seeing the composite nature of experience, the mind learns to go beyond the conditioned world, to the unconditioned. This is why Bahya could just in hearing this brief discourse, be freed from all attachment. Bahya came to the Buddha wanting the freedom, thinking that he had already had it. And many of us think, if we have all the things, all the goodies that life promises, that we know the way through the jungle. And then something happens... We turn 40 and we feel, what are we doing? Or we turn 50 and we start to think, life is going by too fast. Or we turn 60 and we feel old. Or we have turned 70 and we think it's finishing. And it's just a dream. It's just a wink, a blink. we carry carrying this burden. But the burden is of our own making. Because we've been seeing with so much proliferation in everything that we see, propelled, compelled by our fears, by our anger, by our greed, by our delusion. Eventually, the mind learns to stop the flow. It learns to rest in the present moment. It learns to be at one just being present. It learns to point its attention appropriately into the law of karma and to see the cause and effect of right view, right intention, right understanding, right way of thinking. And in the wake of that, the whole path arises. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, the right way of spending our time, right effort, right mindfulness. The torch that lights up the mind is mindfulness and right concentration, from which develops release from the world, right freedom. It is through right view or right seeing itself that the whole path, Evolves, And this we can do, we have the ability to accomplish this just by following this very simple instruction. Hearing the sound, it's just the impact of the striking of a sound on the ear, producing ear consciousness. That's it. There's no proliferation. The mind does not grasp it there's no thought following that, and there's no conjuring up of memory, of planning, of time, of self, of the world. There's just that. With this, there is the arising of that. When there is not this, there is not the arising of that. In just the knowing of these elements arising and ceasing, Eventually, we can become so connected to one of these qualities of every phenomena arising that we can let go so quickly. We can know the impermanence in everything, and everything is only known as impermanent. Impermanent, impermanent, impermanent. The mind is not attaching to anything, and by... Knowing impermanence more and more deeply and then maturing that knowledge, the mind can leap onto the unconditioned. By knowing dukkha, suffering, deeply and deeply, not clinging to any of it, not liking or disliking, just knowing it's all dukkha, arising and ceasing, it's suffering. There's nothing to be held, to be owned. Nowhere for the self to sit, to stand. It's just birth and death. The birth and dying of of forest, of trees, of trails, of path. There's no form, there's no formlessness. There's no light, there's no dark. There's just emptiness. Then the mind can land on the unconditioned. Through knowing those characteristics, of impermanence, suffering, or not so. By letting go of the world through dispassion, through non-proliferation, through non-duality, there's the deathless. There's no more dying. No more birth. No more dying. No more fear of dying. No one to die. But first, Before we can realize that, we have to set out in front of us the intention to go beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. And that means dying to our greed. Dying to our hatred. Dying to our delusion. What is the death of greed, non-greed, Finding, if there's only greedy thought coming up in the mind, finding the place in the heart where there isn't greed. How do we do that? By developing generosity. How do we die to hatred? We have... Is there anyone here who has no hatred? I'll follow that person. If we can die to hatred, then we do that incrementally, gradually. It's very difficult to do what Bahi had done. Obviously, he had developed a lot of perfection before he met the Buddha. Just he had a lot of pride. But to be able to find within the heart the place where there is no hatred, there must be one little island of love, of forgiveness, unconditional we develop that quality. Develop it, grow it, rather than follow our hatefulness, our dislike, our disapproval. Not believing in that, but following and developing gradually, gradually, the quality of non-hating, forgiving. This why this practice of loving-kindness is so important for freeing the mind for awakening compassion, loving-kindness, rejoicing, and the quality of renunciation. This is where equanimity comes in. All of these times to know truly what is this that we're running towards, what is it really? Is it empty? Is it impermanent? Is it suffering? To know what is it really? To understand the law of karma and the power of intention. Moral intention begets moral intention. Ill will begets ill will. Good will begets good will. Greed begets greed, generosity begets generosity. To develop skill in the mind, moment by moment. One moment of freedom we, we never lose that. If we have one moment of freedom, we can build on that. So if there's one moment of non-depression, then we build on that. How did we get that? How did we land there? And to grow that space in the heart. So It starts with incremental baby steps. Not to run ahead of ourselves but incrementally grow in the Dhamma. And trusting the path, knowing that it is possible, knowing where earth, air, water, and fire have no footing. We first have to find our footing in knowing the elements and to take things apart, to take apart the things that we believe in and see them for what they really are. To know the earth element is earth element in the body. To help us develop dispassion for the body, we start to know the body as just body parts. Where Where is the self in that? Is the self in the liver, in, in the bony matter, in tissues, skin, head of the hair, teeth, sinews, undigested food, excrement, is that self? These are all empty, 32 parts of the body. It is said that if you repeat the 32 parts of the body, backwards and forwards, there's actually a formula for doing this, and it's a very effective way to cure illness, for those of you that are caught up with some virus at the moment. Take the 32 parts and chant them one by one, line by line, backwards and forwards, over and over again, day after day. There will be no illness. It's a purification. These tools that the Buddha taught us are ways of purifying the mind. They're trainings in purification. If we follow the path of Dhamma, the mind can only go in one direction. What every true path follows, it's in the direction of the unconditioned, total purification. And yes, in that way, it's annihilation. Now that might sound scary, but one has to really understand that there is nothing to annihilate. Because all conditioned phenomena are empty. Empty phenomena rolling along. Therefore, we should not take refuge in them, but take refuge in the path that leads to the knowing of the unconditioned in the heart. So I'll stop there for today. Thank you. Thank you.